a quick excerpt here and then um have you read this excerpt before uh, i'll bet a thousand dollars you have go ahead yeah yeah go ahead i'm actually (laughs) (laughs) that's what stories are for yes stories are for joining the past to the future stories are for those late hours in the night when you can't remember how you got from where you were to where you are stories are for eternity when memories are erased, when there is nothing to remember except the story. I'm Don Hall. And I'm David Himmel. And this is the Literate Apecast. The Literate Apecast uses bad words. If you don't like bad words, maybe send and listen to it. <laughs> thinking the other day you know we are a literary magazine and uh once i get back to chicago probably a bit more of events oriented uh as well which is fun um but i was also thinking about like books and and right now the publishing industry is in its weird place there are i mean there are millions and millions of books being self-published and then there are not so many millions of books that are actually being published by publishers nobody's making any money uh, except for, <laughs> except for the big, you know, it's like, yeah. well, I was, I was, it was one of the funny things I was, uh, I was thinking about, it was a conversation we had with Donnie Smith about how he's done a number of, you know, he said, he said smaller roles in a number of films and that he gets, you know, these royalty checks that are like, here's six bucks, you know, that kind of thing. And I get, I get royalty. I've had royalty checks for like a dollar and two cents. Yeah. And, and so yeah. what I, what I look at is I look at like, uh, cause I just released casino at the end of the world and that's, that's selling, you know, and uh, the prostitute books selling and problematic movies continues to once in a while get a sell. But I realized if the prostitute oh, book didn't sell. That would be an, a strange irony. That would be a straight, that would be a very strange irony. Yeah. Um, but no, that's what I realized is like, okay, if I look at how much money I make writing books, I probably make about as much money as Donnie Smith has being in movies with Al Pacino and, and Matthew McConaughey. It's like, all right, if you put it in that kind of perspective, it's not too bad. But what I was really thinking about is, I know, what I was really thinking about was what are the books that I can recall reading in my life that came at a point that really made a, a like a massive impact on how mm-hmm. I saw myself, how I saw the world, how I saw whatever journey yeah. I was on. What books really <laughs> stand out? So I wanted to know. I yeah, mean, it was a I, it was a, tough a question. Yeah, I've got a ridiculously long list, but I'll pick I'll pick less. I'll pick the ones that are important. But what what are you what 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 are well, some of those books for you? I I picked th- three. That I want yeah, to like that like specifically because I had to choose the three, but I want to give honorable mentions. That's a, see, maybe that's what I'm doing because okay. I've got three. I've got three, yeah. and then I've got a ton of honorable mentions. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. The first honorable mention that I want to give is oh, so you're going to go to the honorable mentions first? I just I just want to get out of the way because I want to like talk about the three that I picked. Like, okay, I don't want to spend it. too much time. Honorable mentions are um, the Bell Jar. I I thought okay. that book was so. It's just so illuminating. I th- I mean, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> and it's not a funny book. No, it's really not a funny book. Except that I think it is a funny book. Like, Plath was, she was wry. You know, she oh, was a very she wry. Was a, she was a funny and, writer, but. Uh, uh, and like the character in that book is going through this. It's it's kind of like the character in, in the Bell Jar, who's the character's name is completely escaping me right now, but is like a less annoying or just a completely not annoying version of Holden Caulfield from yeah. Catcher in the oh, Rye. Oh, oh, yeah, no question about I that. That's great. Hated Holden. I, I did not like that book. I read it in my 30s. So like maybe if I'd read it when I was when I was 15, I would have felt different about it. But see, I like I like that book. Anyway. I read it when I was a kid. But but uh, th- to be honest with you, in terms like, oh, oh, well, this book really made it. Catcher in the Rye didn't make any impact on me. I mean, it's, no, it Catch made about as much like impact punk, as... It was like punk before there was punk music. And then you go back yeah. to your first punk record. It's like Catching the Rye. And you're like, this isn't punk. This is just windy bullshit. Like, what's the, what's the, what's the, <laughs> Ayn, what's the Ayn Rand book? It's not, uh, it's not Atlas Shrugged. What's the one that all the, oh. the young tech bros go, oh, uh, this just really... Fountainhead start, or Fountain... Fountainhead, yes, the Fountainhead. Yeah. I read that and, and I, and I, you know, there were things I took from it, but it, did it make a huge impact on... 
how I saw life. No, no. It was just like, oh, ah, all right. So that's what the big deal is. So, I mean, yeah. there are certain books like that. Bell Jar Act, I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a pretty. So my second honorable mention is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter of, Thompson. Of course it is. I'm surprised that's not one of your three. That's, well, that's interesting. Well, yeah. But the funny thing about Thompson is I didn't get into Thompson until later. Like, oh, really? I thought I that was, was already, I was already, um, like a, a writer and yeah. writing for magazines. Like, I was out of college. I was, and the thing is, my, my best buddy, um, in college and out, uh, Mike Ziegler, he was a huge, huge Thompson fan. So he's the one that introduced me to it, but I didn't really dive into Thompson until much later. Um, and when I started reading Fear and Loathing, because that was the first one that I read, I was like, wait a minute, I've, I've been doing, I've been writing like this all along. I was doing Thompson and Gonzo journalism. Your version of it. Yeah. Before, but my version of it, or even Tom Wolf, like I, you know, like the, the, the Gonzo journalist, I was doing that before I knew what it was. So it was just like this natural predilection. So I don't love Thompson because of the way he writes. I love Thompson because, or I don't write the way I do because of Thompson. I love Thompson because of the way that I write. Fair. That's you know fair. I mean? That's... So when I, I was like, oh my God, I've been doing this. All... Okay, cool. Sure, um, sure. And then my third honorable mention, and then we'll go to yours. Yeah. Is because uh, the question was books that changed your life. Yeah. My first book, A Camp Story. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that did, it, it, I, it did I, change I, your life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it had an impact. You know, and it, it changed the way, not just because like, oh, my first book was published, but I mean, obviously that was a change, but it also changed the way I read books now and the way that I think about books that have been written and how to write, you know, having then written a book myself, like it just, it, it changes. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, once I, once I became a theater director, once I had directed enough sort of uh, I thought am very ambitious, weird pieces of theater in Chicago, it changed how I saw theater going it's it mm-hmm. changed how i when i went to see a show it was hard for me to just relax and enjoy it because i was looking at it from a different you know from a creator's lens rather than a, a an observer's in, lens mm-hmm. and i think that's yeah that that makes sense my i actually have four i guess uh what i would call honorable mentions um one is ken casey's uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest Um, because I saw the movie, then I read the book and there's enough differences between the two, but they say a lot about our predilection to follow, to conform, to acknowledge and accept authority on it's just its face. And that, that, that book specifically the book, but yes, in in contrast, that's why I can't just say it was just the book because the movie made that that same impact really made my impact on, yeah, um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, Martini. I want to be fucking, you know, McMurphy. That's who I want to be. That's the kind of person that I respect. Those are the people that inspire me, despite the fact that he ends up, you know, <laughs> you know, being lobotomized. Um, yeah. <laughs> A second one is uh, Bukowski's Notes of a Dirty Old Man. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, there's just not, not anything about that book that doesn't make me happy in a weird sort of degenerate way. Mm-hmm. You know, I really love that book. And I don't know if it changed my life, but I really love that book. Um, obviously, Kerouac's On the Road. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that almost made it, the, the cut for me. Yeah. It almost made the cut for me. Um, but uh, it's uh, it, I, it, I'm, 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 enough said. I got a tattoo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say that The Stand, Stephen King, mm, okay. um, really gave me, I mean, I'd read Lord of the Rings and all that, like big epic novels, like epic novels with huge stories and multiple cast members and this whole thing. The Stand was the book that really fucking nailed me i mean it just because it's got a lot of characters all over the country deal i mean it's really basically the walking dead but long before the walking dead existed and it's 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 great and i just added one 
again, honorable mention, then I'll quit and we'll get to the, was Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. I, got, I really, I, I, I really like, <laughs> the thing is, I can't say it changed my life, but it did at a time when I read it, 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 it sort of reminded me of things that were already very important that are very easy to get lost in sort of like the pursuit of whatever you're pursuing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you're coming down this, you mentioned of a stand reminded me of one that I thought about. It, I didn't write it down here. Um, this is in a, a young adult novel that I read I, in seventh or eighth grade called Remember Me by Christopher Pike. Okay. You have no I don't idea. Know if you're familiar with that at all. Yeah. Never even heard of it. Yeah. So this was published in 89. So like, you know, it, you missed it. You know, you yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't reading young adult shit then. Um, this book. So let me just quickly read you the synopsis of this book. <laughs> Sherry Cooper hadn't planned on dying, but four floors is a long way to fall. Her friends say she fell, but Sherry knew she had been murdered. Making a vow to herself to find her killer. <laughs> Sherry spies on her friends and even enters their dreams. She also comes face to face with a nightmare from beyond the grave. The shadow, a thing more horrible than death itself, is the key to Sherry's death and the only thing that can stop her murderer from murdering again. Spoiler alert, the shadow is what happens when you kill yourself. Ah. You become this like trapped thing. You you can't go to heaven because you've murdered somebody. Yeah, You can't go to hell because taking your own life is so egregious that even hell won't take you. Wow. And I can remember, like, this was the first book that I read that I actually, like, wanted to like go back you know it was a page turner like my yeah, first yeah. page turner and i was so that's scared. how i feel about the stand spooky, that's how i feel about the stand i couldn't that's a spooky book yeah yeah <laughs> when you get when you get a book that you know and it's one of the things that i i genuinely appreciate uh stephen king and i and i would say chuck polinick as well for giving me just what i would call ripping yarns they're yeah. just stories that I can lose myself in that. I'm just, I want to, I want to like, Oh, I've just finished a chapter. Fuck. It's two o'clock in the morning. I got to go to sleep. Fuck off. I got to, I got to read, I got to read one more. Yeah. Motherfucking chapter. I mean, those are the books. Losing yourself. That's the interesting thing. That's yeah. One of my, one of my books is where I really just lost myself. And like, I'm just going to say, let's just start. All right, go for it. What's your first, what's your first. It's, it's Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So about like losing yourself. When I read this book, um, I <laughs> I wanted to be a Hell's a 1960s something Hell's Angel. It's not that I had this. I wanted to like go out and rape and murder and do all these drugs and do all the fucking terrible. You wanted things. all the cool stuff about it. Yeah. Just like, yeah, there was just like, there was, <laughs> but that's like to the credit of Thompson's writing, you know? Um, but it also like, let me just, I want to read a, a quick excerpt from this. <laughs> Smacky Jack's turbulent three-year reign came to an end in 1964. Few of the outlaws seemed to know what happened to him. I heard he took a real bad fall, said one. He pushed his luck about as hard as a guy could. Motorcycle outlaws are reluctant to talk seriously about former buddies who came to a bad end. The implications are too depressing. Smacky Jack, with his penchant for freelance dentistry, was not the type to retire peacefully. Whatever happened, whether he was jailed, killed, or forced to flee anonymously, he exists in outlaw legend as a rollicking, unpredictable monster who always prevailed. His loss was a demoralizing blow to the Satan slaves whose spirit was already faltering under continued police pressure. So like, <laughs> first of all, like, what a wonderfully beautiful way to describe yeah a, a man's death or disappearance, and then like, oh, Satan's slaves were sad. They were sad. The Satan's slaves <laughs> were sad. Yeah. yeah. So how but did you book, say that it changed your life? What was the change? What? What do yeah, you? I'm curious about that. I, I ended up using this book as a. as a loose template to help me write a camp story okay because i had all this time and it wasn't like my story that i was telling on my own i had to like i had to interview people other people's stories and i was trying to pull it all together to tell this this single narrative about all this other shit that was going on and all these characters that come and go and some are there all the way through it was just a really great template 
um, for me. So it, you know, where I, I entered when I first read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it was like, oh, I've been writing like this since I've been writing. Hell's Angels gave me permission to be like, oh, this is how I can write this other book. You know, like yeah. just, it was um, it was a nice template for what I was trying to do with the camp book. There you go. And how you like go. and how it used like pull quotes and other things like that. It just it really helped help me structure what that story was going to be because it had been done and it had been yeah. done really really well. Yeah. Well, my three books. Uh, it's interesting because also I was thinking about when when I was picking my books, like when did I read them, and only one of the three. I read before I graduated high school mm. and the other two I read when I was uh, an adult in Chicago, you know, when I was kind of trying to make my bones. And the first one that I read when I was in Chicago was Peter Brooks, the empty space, a book about theater, deadly, holy, rough, immediate. And part of it was because I was, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I came to play jazz. I got married. Then I was a music teacher. And then I kind of got involved in Second City, which kind of opened things up for me for like a, a theatrical, because I'd done, you know, I'd done regional equity theater and all that kind of stuff. But this really opened things up. And at some point, somebody, and I don't know who it was, gave me a copy of this book. I might have just found it somewhere. I have no clue. But Sort of the idea that, and this is a quote from the book, I can take any empty space and call it a bare stage. A man walks across this empty space while someone else is watching him. And this is all that is needed for an act of theater to be engaged. And, you know, I, I could get into the entire definitions of deadly, holy, rough, and immediate theater, but I'm not going to. It just, I think I probably read this book, and this was in the nascent days of WNEP. Uh, at the time, we were doing some improv and some sketch, and we were looking for something more. And I just wanted something interesting and different. And um, and and this, I think I probably read this book a dozen times in the space of a few weeks. I mean, I really just mm -hmm. it was just like it was just like uh, diamonds of of intellectual fodder just dropping from the sky. And I would argue that that in terms of how it influenced me, I would say, you know, I mean, I ran a theater for 15 years in Chicago, and I would argue that a lot of the theater that we created um, definitely had in mind sort of that concept of here's an empty space. Here is the thing we want you to see. Here is you seeing it that's theater and and anything goes in between those three pieces of parameter anything goes and i really uh, you know it's, it's it it was a significant part of sort of my artistic and creative because i still feel that way whether it's theater or not i feel that mm -hmm. way about storytelling i feel that way about writing i you know it, it's like you know writing what's 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 really writing well there's an empty page Mm -hmm. and someone writing words and someone to read them. That is it. That's the, that's the sole rubric or metric for what writing is. Now, what do I do with that? What games mm -hmm. can I play? How do I, what I've got a sandbox that is unlimited. So what do I do in that sandbox? So yeah, that's my first book, the empty space, a book about the theater, deadly, holy, rough, immediate, by Peter Brook. It was published in 1968, two years after I was born. Wow. Uh, my next one is uh, is Douglas Copeland's Generation X. Have you read this? I Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was a book. Um, it was published in... When was this published? Because it, it, it kind I, of matters. Yeah, it does matter. Because um, yeah, he, he, he first got... Of all, <laughs> He got it. He got us before we, we became middle-aged as really as, as, as I recall. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The book opens up with a, a Roy Lichtenstein mm -hmm. esque, or is this actually Lichtenstein? I don't know if that it's is actually Lichtenstein. No, that, that is actually Lichtenstein. Yeah. Of the woman drinking the coffee with the, the, <laughs> the conversation bubble. Don't worry, mother. If the marriage doesn't work out, we can always get divorced. Which 
at the time that I read this, this was two. I was given this book in two thousand two, three ish by sure. my girlfriend at the time, Carolyn, who was ten years older than me. So you know, you and I debate this. Like, I am Generation yeah, X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're just barely Generation X, and I'm Generation X, but could almost be a boomer, like at the yeah. end of the boomer, well, because Generation X technically starts in sixty five, and I was born in sixty six. However, my mother, who is a boomer, was. 15 when she had me. So I'm not sure how that all plays out, whatever. It, it's not yeah. that important, but the book itself is magnificent. Yeah. The I agree book with is you. magnificent. And it, let me just read two little bits from, it's also a really interesting book. Cause it's not, it does have narrative, you know, it is, it is narrative fiction. Um, but it's got these little like margins, you know, mm-hmm. where, so I want to, I want to read just two of these. It's kind of like definitions of defining it's accelerated it's, culture. It's footnotes. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. little footnotes, yeah. But not in the annoying way like David Foster Wallace. Well, we're going to get to that, motherfucker. Yeah, Great. Um, and this book, well, let me just, let me read these things. So here's one, uh, one definition. Historical underdosing. To live in a period of time when nothing seems to happen. Major symptoms include addiction to newspapers, magazines, and TV news broadcasts. I have long felt that Generation X was kind of like, I mean, there was some shit that went down. Like we had the AIDS epidemic. We had the crack epidemic. We had the, the Challenger explosion. The we cha- had a lot of stuff. But like it didn't the feel The fall of intense. the fucking Berlin Wall. I mean, but come that's, on. That's good stuff. Like that was, I mean, AIDS wasn't good stuff, but like the Berlin Wall was good stuff. Um, but it, it wasn't the same kind of like, global moments like the boomers or the greatest generation had. They didn't have World War II. They didn't have um we didn't have a massive the civil rights of oval the 60s, arching you know? conflict. Yeah. We didn't have one giant conflict right. that polarized. And so yeah. And yet we were still so meh and unhappy and <laughs> you know reality bites. You know. So that's historical underdosing where nothing's going on, but you know Everything's going on and we're just obsessed with it. The next page, here's another definition for you. So from historical underdosing, this is now historical overdosing. To live in a period of time when too much seems to happen. Major symptoms include addiction to newspapers, magazines, and TV news broadcasts. <laughs> and I believe that's what we're in right now. Yeah, this is so the same. childhood. This is was the same as 1970. Yeah, yeah. Now it's like too much is happening. Uh. See, I was born, I was literally born in the Vietnam era. So I don't really have the benefit other than maybe, you know, that sort of like psychic, which I think is a bunch of fucking nonsense, traumatic experience from being born during a time where blah, blah, blah. And then there was the seventies when I grew up and then the eighties when I came of age and then kind of nothing happened. And then, 9-11, which was a pretty big defining moment, but the way we treated it was not like a greatest generation World War II thing, the way we, you know, and so, yeah, now we're in COVID. And all it's like, all right, you know, I, but no, I do, I, I appreciate, how did that book change you? How did it change your life? Um, well, first of all, I just have to say that these illustrations are not actual Lichtensteins. Oh, are they according not? To oh, the, according to the copyright page, the well, book, then the that's by Paul Ravoche. I I'm disappointed because I, I, I mean I've only read Jesus it the Christ. one yeah I've only read it the one time so I just assumed because it's Copeland so I just assumed he yeah. got the right selected time but whatever. Um, Copeland's a great writer too. Yeah, um, he really Shanty is. Planet is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Life after God is is great. Um, it changed my life because it came. I was I was in a, a weird. When am I not in a weird relationship? Um, but I was in this relationship with Carolyn and Carolyn, you know, there's always, no matter how bad a relationship is, if we label it that way, like, Oh, it's a terrible sure. relationship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are some things to take some pot. There have to be some positive things to take away from the relationship. Or you wouldn't have stuck around for so long if right. it's longer than three weeks. Yeah. And it's gotta be more than just like the sex, right? You can come on, like maybe, but okay. One of the great things about Carolyn is that she really, opened me up to literature. Like she was just such a voracious reader and she had 10 years on me. So like she knew Doug Copeland. I mean, Generation X, this book is what coined the term 
yeah. for our generation. Um, so this book changed my life because it was part of several books in that period of time in my life that was like just, oh, this is literature. This is how writing gets done. These are books. This is a way of looking at a period of time, David. So like that Generation X, a specific book was like kind of defining what I had felt but never really thought about because it's like like you were just saying like when you're coming up in it you don't think about the historical impact of it you know yeah um so yeah it just it it just kind of opened my my eyes to the availability of different kinds of literature and just what's out there and how to write and how to use the written page to tell a story again with like the footnotes and the way that they were presented and the illustrations, you know, um, and like it, the book shape has an odd, it's not a standard, it's novel, not a standard size, it's know, tabloid it's, size the, the kind paper, of thing. Yeah. At least on this copy, um, is kind of rough around the, on the edges. Like yeah. It's, it's tabloid very, style. Yeah. Yeah. So just a very interesting book from that perspective. Like there's just so many things that, um, we're, we're new. Yeah. 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 Yeah, my second one is uh, from 1994, and this was actually a gift uh, in, in my early days of the theater um, by Katie Cawson. It was a birthday gift, and it was her, and she did. She said, I bought you this book because I think you're the Henry Rollins of off-loop theater. <laughs> and you know, I don't know if that's at all even close to true. However... Um, it's uh, his memoir, Get in the Van, by Henry Rollins. And basically, it's a journal. It's a journal, and it begin, the entries begin in 1981. And it really it documents the time surrounding Rollins' introduction to and joining of Black Flag, which is a big punk band. Um, from there, he recounts a string of violent shows, long hours on the road, abuse by police, um, kind of living this band in a van lifestyle. A big part of it is dedicated to their first tour of England, um, which is really uh, not a very pleasant. Black Flag's first tour of England. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently yeah. it was what, yeah, it was just not a good, <laughs> it was just not a good thing. He describes the band as being alienated by its audience, how he then alienated himself from the band um, and the final entry is in 86. And he basically talks about, uh, you know, being in the band, what, how, how, how would it, it changed him and what the breakup of the band, what, you know, what scars that left with him. And at the time, what really, and I will say it did change my life is it was, I was already kind of on that. I want to do Chicago theater. I want to do art that is different. And and I remember having arguments with people that it's like, Don, different's not always good. And my answer is yes, it always different is always good. I mean, I, I mean, my perspective was if it's the same, you know, and I and I to this day have have that perspective of, and I used to use this example, and I still do when I talk about events or anything like that. It's like, you know, you got it, you got a crossroads, you got a four, you got four corners. And on one corner is a coffee shop, on the other corner is a coffee shop. And another corner is a coffee shop. And then there's a, a corner with nothing in it. What are you going to put there? And my perspective when it came, when it comes to art, theater, books, anything, the people I am most inspired by, the stuff that I want to put out the most, it's not going to be a fucking coffee shop. It's going to be something completely different. Now, if I'm smart. Boba, Boba tea shop. Fun, you know, and, and I would say that get in the van really kind of, and I think probably given that she gave it to me with that sort of caveat, you know, it certainly mm -hmm. was romantic for me to read it and think, Oh, she sees this in me. Yeah. Um, you know, but that, that, that book, I still have that copy. And when I interviewed Henry, Henry Rollins in Chicago for the podcast, um, I had him sign that copy of that book. Nice that I'd had since 1994, because I was like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to sit down with the guy and I have the opportunity to say, Hey, I mean, I had to sign, sign a couple of books of his, but that was the one that he wanted to know. Cause it was, I mean, it's a first edition. And he was like, when did you get this? And I told him the story and he loved it. And so he signed it. And it was like, yeah. So that, 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 that book really did 
I would say most of the good and really shitty things that happened to me for those 15 years of running that theater probably emanated in a, in a great way from that book or from my experience reading that book. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so my third book that changed my life, uh, it's, it's, it's by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. What an incredible book. Wow. Um, it's just really so interesting and, and neat. And it changed my life because it turned me into a practicing Catholic. The third book <laughs> that has ranked at the top of my list of my favorite books is 50 shades of gray is 50 50 shades Shades of gray. It it, it told you that your weird fucking sexual tendencies are completely normal. No, go ahead. Um, It's Tim O'Brien's. The the thing is, I knew you were going to, I knew that was going to be your top of your list. It's it's, it's, this, this has been a a, a regular tone. I like what I like for as long as for as long as we've been doing the eight cast you you've brought this book up several times a, a number of times so yeah i figured that's we're not that we're not that so transparent <laughs> a quick excerpt here and then um have you read this excerpt before i'll bet a thousand dollars you have go ahead yeah yeah go ahead i'm actually <laughs> yeah, okay. that's what stories are for yes stories you have. Are for joining the past to the future Stories are for those late hours in the night when you can't remember how you got from where you were to where you are. Stories are for eternity. When memories are erased, when there's nothing to remember except the story. And I'm reading this now and I'm just realizing, holy shit, how ingrained that is in my brain because here's an excerpt from the introduction of my camp book. Oh, God. And that's comforting because I, for one, hope to God that when I finally lose my mind, when I'm at the thin line of mania and forgetfulness, I've got some nice girl to drive me up to the one place I could always remember, camp. Because if I can't find my way back to the boys' program cabin, then I'm not completely lost. Or because if I can't find my way, my way back, I'm not completely lost. And hopefully I can tell a camp story. And if so, I'll always know who I am and where I came from. There Jesus. you go. There so there's go. how the book changed my life. I mean, it influenced. Yeah. It, 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 it infected the way you see Stories. Story. And, and, yeah, 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 yeah. The concept. That's exactly it. Um, and it's just a really it's it's funny, it is sweet, and it was assigned to me twice. Um, because I, I read it first as an assignment. Um oh my god, so so this is from a chapter called Good Form. And my note next to it is good form indeed. And it begins, <laughs> it's t- it's time to be blunt. I'm 43 years old, true, and I'm a writer now. And a long time ago, I walked through Quang Nai province as a foot soldier. Almost everything else is invented, but it's not a game, it's a form. What stories can do, I guess, is make things present. I can look at things I never looked at. I can attach faces to grief and love and pity in God. I can be brave. I can make myself feel again. It's just, I mean, it's some heavy shit. It's good shit. stuff. Then, it's good stuff. Um, so it was assigned to me first in a, I had a professor. And, it, my, and, and by the way, I will, I will share with you that since the first, I, mean, I, I, I think you probably mentioned this book the very first time. I probably did. Yeah. Five fucking years ago. And I immediately went out and bought it and, were, and read it. So I have a it's copy. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a beautiful, very, very, very good book. And my, my professor, my writing professor in college, John Ersfeld, um, was my mentor. And so I took every class I could with him. So creative writing classes, he assigned this book, I'm sorry, no, the first class that he assigned it in was um, Literature of the Vietnam War, which was a class he was teaching. I like the Vietnam War. What a time. I like John Ersfeld. Let's go take that. And this was one of the books. And because it is about Vietnam, as much as it, because Tim O'Brien has written about Vietnam in several of his books. Um, but of course, it was so much more than Vietnam. It's about telling stories about Vietnam. It's telling stories about your life. And it was just, and then he assigned it again in another creative writing class um, to read because it is a an instruction book on yeah. how to write cre- on, on creative writing. You know, and the only book that the thing is, and that's it's very funny that we started the way we started because I really do like that book. Um, but the book that really works better for me in that in that regard, how to tell stories, how to write, is Stephen King's on writing. 
I oh, yeah. The, I have the single. Yeah. I literally have the most tattered paperback version of that fucking book. It literally has, and I don't write in books. I'm not that guy that, that writes in the margins of books to remind. I'm not a highlighter. That was never my thing. This fucking book, I have written shit in the margins. Of, it's you, If you were to pick this book up and say, hey, uh, you know, can I read this done? You would, you wouldn't. You couldn't read the book. To, yeah. You couldn't yeah. read the book. I've made so many fucking notes in this goddamn thing. So, yeah, so I feel that yeah. story in on writing is, and yeah, that's oof. that yeah, one's that that's is, the book is real in terms of that uh, book is really, really it's a, good. It's a fucking big deal. Yeah. It's a big it deal. A when big it comes deal. To yeah. That. yeah. Shit. Maybe that should have made the list too. Oof. But what I love, my favorite like takeaway from that book is the story of Carrie. Yeah, yeah. He was, he's writing and he throws it in the trash. And his wife was just like <laughs> housekeeping one day and she sees this man, you know, half-written manuscript and she picks up and reads it, puts it back on his desk. He sits yeah. down and she says, finish it. I want to know what happens. There you go. That, and that's like, it. That's the game. Holy shit. Like, I want to know what happens is the greatest thing a reader can say. Yeah. 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 And speaking of uh, books that we've mentioned more than a few times, the book that I would say is the most influential book in my life. It, it it has, and that's the thing. This book has, I've read this book. I was trying to think how many times I've read this book cover to cover. Um, and it's a book you can't even get through. I've, I think I've probably read this book cover to cover 25 times. I mean, it's, it's just, it is literally I I just, my single favorite my book mind. ever written. It is uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Um, and I will just give you, I'm not going to read from it because that would take seven hours to read anything from it. If we're lucky. But I love, I love, I love the Wikipedia description of it. It just makes me laugh because this start is with, not, fuck this shit. Put it down. No, this is not how I would describe this book, but I, I, I like the way that it's a post modern encyclopedic novel famous for its length detail and digressions involving 388 endnotes, some of which have themselves footnotes. It's mm. also been called metamodernist and hysterical realist. It's, uh, it's his encyclopedic display of knowledge incorporates, and this is why I think I love this book, media theory, linguistics, film studies, sport, addiction, science, issues of national identity. It, it, it's humorous, and it is funny. I think it's very funny, but it really is dark and sad. Um, it alternates between third person, omniscient points of view, and also lots of first person. It is as close to a really, really brilliant fucked up dude vomiting onto a goddamn page and saying, read this. I love this book so much. And one of the things that uh, like for you that you love, you love Thompson because um, you he writes you were already writing that way. I love David Foster Wallace because I didn't know when I read this the first time, which was in high school. Um, I did not know that that's how I would write. And, and I, you know, I, I, I think I, I think I tailored a little, I'm not quite as fucking awful and, and overwhelming as David Foster Wallace in some of my writing, but that's no, always, you are, your writing is surprisingly tight considering but know, but, how, but my goal is always to write like him, which is funny to me that, I, somehow I can keep it concise because it's always what are a billion different influences? How does this come to an opinion I have? How does this come to a piece that I'm writing? Let's go. And, and I, but I just, if I, the thing is, I don't for, I would say for every fifth thing I've written for literate ape, there have been, there could be, if I wanted to at least 10 footnotes for every thousand word article. God damn. Because I write footnotes and the footnotes are really just sort of like my asides, my marginal, you know, it's like yeah. I'm writing in the margin, but they're footnotes. I mean, they are serious and they are citations. And it's like, I can't help myself. That's how I fucking write. I probably don't a lot write of times I work because I do I, that so much. I, I, I work when I'm, remember when I used to write um, and I'm trying to write more. <laughs> you will. I will. I will have to. Uh, I, I, I will edit 
to avoid, like as I'm writing, you know, the self edit as you're writing, which don't do, but like do it. You're gonna, you're gonna, yeah. Um, can't help yourself to avoid like the need for footnotes. But I, if I were going to lean into my footnotes, they would be more Chuck Klosterman versus okay. your David Foster Wallace. Yeah, yeah. No, when you have footnotes that are their own pages, that's the. I, it's so fucking good. Each one of his track, footnotes is like a you fucking can't essay. Track the thinking. You don't know where you are in the thinking. Well, if you only read it one time, yeah. If you read it twenty-five times, it all fucking makes sense. It all work. makes fucking sense. But here's the here's the beauty. God, of, I love that book. It changed you know, the way I looked at the world because, again, I, I mean, in t- terms of changing my life, what it said to me, and I think one of my big takeaways, and you know, it's it's sort of like I will uh, quote, it's sort of like my love of the movie The Fisher King, in that every time I watch it, depending on where I'm at in my life, it changes, you know, it shifts what I see and how it how it applies to me. I can, I can say the same thing about infinite jest because his, his viewpoint, and it's the genius I think of DFW is that he doesn't say here's the the thing. Yeah. (laughs) Here's a thing. And this is the, and this is the thing he says, here's all of the fucking things. Yeah. It's and how do they influence and, and you know it's just like it's it's like looking at life and saying okay well it reminds me I mean to be honest with you, it's like his essay consider the lobster yeah. it's like he's talking about a very specific thing but cannot avoid seeing all of these points of connections from all of these other ideas and concepts that influence that thing that's how I see the world. And I love that that's how I see the world because he opened up, I've, I've said this, one of the things about my theater background, one of the things that I've always tried to do that I'm, and I guess this kind of fits with my love of the stand as well. To me, the greatest pieces of art recognize, and it's an image I've always had, and I don't know if David Foster Wallace wrote this before, but it's always something I've had, is the idea of like a, 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 a brownstone apartment building in like the Bronx, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a hundred apartments facing the street and somehow you slice the very front facade off and take it off. And in that building, somebody's like a having, a, yeah, somebody's having a birthday. Somebody's dying at that moment. Somebody's falling in love. Somebody's getting a divorce. It's all happening at the same time. And to recognize all of these things happening at the same moment and how they impact or do not impact each other is just, I think, one of the most wonderful ways of seeing the world. And David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest opened that idea up for me and continues to punch me in the face every time I read it. I, and yes, we have talked about this a lot. As much as, much as Tim O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... I, I think the same way, like slice it off. And that's why like sometimes writing is really fucking hard for, for me and for, for writers. I mean, when you're a writer, you're, your, your senses are all what you're hearing and seeing and processing and, and being present with it, but also you're in the future writing it out and changing it. You're thinking about the history and ah, it's fucking, this is why writers drink, smoke and kill themselves. It's exactly hard. It is exhausting, <laughs> but I have the same uh, approach to the brain, like all the connective tissues coming together. What I try and do for the sake of the goddamn reader as a favor to them is organize it a little bit before I present it to them. Because if I can find a way to take all of that and bring it into this one thing that is a delicious nugget, you know, Pop it in oh, your mouth and ooh, yeah, see, your see, and the thing is, Foster I think Wallace cannot do no, that. No, I think he does. I think he does. I think uh I footnotes think he with does. footnotes, Don. Yeah, exactly. The reason the footnotes exist is because he's trying to help you because you can read the book without the footnotes. You know that. But if the how it's you it's just so ignore the foot. You know it, but you just ignore the foot. But footnotes. am I missing out on something? What am I missing? 
What am well, I missing from the story? And, and that's the point is you can read the story without the footnotes. You can read the footnotes without the story. And then if you read them all at the same time, you get a different, it's a different story every time. It, it sounds like choose, two different books. Make it it more is. Easily it's a choose your own adventure. And it is two different books. But when you read them all at the same time and put them together, it becomes a story of life, of, of living on the planet as a human being. It's so that, yeah. goddamn awesome. So that's It's that's along the, the lines thing. of, um, oh, what's his name? The, the Swedish, is he Swedish? I think so. Um, my struggle, K Kurt, Carl, uh, shit, what's his name? He did like seven. Carl Urban. Struggle. Yeah, he played um, he played the revisited Dread and was uh, no. McCoy in the new Star Treks. No, um, this is my struggle book. Uh, Carl of Nusgard. Well, yeah, I'm um, glad I, I knew who he was. It's what a the fuck? six. Yeah, it's a six book autobiographical autobiographical novels so like and these things are heavy oh yeah yeah but it's like it's if it's it's what dfw i think could have done like take your all your shit make six really thick books no like no it's because the thing is it's sort of like ulysses it's it it becomes its own challenge and and there is something uh, to be said for saying i have waded through this and i i, I got out on the other side and here are the things that I, I I learned about myself from the experience, and I feel the same way. To me, you know, it's like some people run a marathon, you know, and they they get you, that. You read Infinite Jest. I read Infinite Jest. That's my fucking marathon, and I I love it every time. So, this wasn't a book that changed my life, um, but it was a, it was two paragraphs from a book, from an introduction of a book, and not a great book, and a really fucking bad movie. That gave us a really exciting public celebrity divorce. This is from uh, Hunter Thompson. Jesus, David. It's from Thompson's The Rum Diary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your description, I was like, where's he going with where this? Going? And then as soon as you said Rum Diary, I went, oh, well, yeah, that was a really apt way of putting it. <laughs> um, so, real quickly, like, I don't know if you knew this. Um, and so, if you did, this is for the dear listener. But the Rum Diary was published after Thompson died. I didn't um, know that. It was written a long time ago. He wrote it, put it away. When Johnny Depp, who was friends with Thompson after working on the Fear and Loathing film, um, was going through his shit, he found this unpublished manuscript that was the Rum Diary and got it published. He went to Thompson's publisher and I didn't know or, that. You know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So like Johnny Depp got this book published and then, you know, owned the rights and turned it into a really shitty movie. <laughs> it was a shitty movie. They gave us him and Amber Heard because Amber Heard yeah. played the. Uh... So, but this is from the introduction. Um, and I'll tell you why it changed my life because it, it defined what I had been feeling for so long. Again, this is, this is kind of what Thompson does for me is like he, he has put, he has put words to my feelings. Yeah, right? yeah there like, you go. It's like, oh, this is how it, this is it. And the frustrating thing about Thompson is that like, why do I bother writing when there are, there's a guy like Hunter Thompson who already said it and said it better. Because you, you know? might be somebody else's Hunter Thompson. Who knows? Maybe. Like most of the others, I was a seeker, a mover, a malcontent, and at times a stupid hellraiser. I was never idle long enough to do much thinking but I felt somehow that my instincts were right. I shared a vagrant optimism that some of us were making real progress, that we had taken an honest road and that the best of our world and, and that the best of us would inevitably make it over the top. At the same time, I shared a dark suspicion that the life we were leading was a lost cause, that we were all actors kidding ourselves along on a senseless odyssey. It was the tension between these two poles, a restless idealism on one hand and a sense of impending doom on the other, it kept me going. I mean, if I could get that put on my headstone or or tattooed on my neck, that's if it. If you got a tattooed on you your know? neck, you're never getting another job. No, not not outside of a tattoo parlor.
love the news. All right, Shotgun Rorschach. Let's do it. We're going to do them fast. In maybe it's because thieves can't carry a 100-pound jar of peanut butter. Costco has an answer to the theft problems at Walmart and Target. Make it bigger, baby. Just make it bigger. Go, go Texas. Go Super Americana. Go Claim Jumper Restaurant. Make it bigger. No one can handle bigger. In we don't like it, so we will pretend it doesn't exist. As book bans soar, a more subtle form of censorship has begin, begun ravaging U.S. libraries. The subtle, the more subtle form is they just yeah. hide. They hide the books. They just hide the books they don't like. They they don't ban them. They just put them where you can't find them. Wait, the libraries put them where you can't find them, or people are like, I don't like this book. I'm moving it to. Both. We're just a nation of passive aggressively aggressive asshole children that take their balls and go home. In faith in what exactly? Poll. Republicans see Trump as a person of faith more so than Mitt Romney, Mike Pence, and others. How? <laughs> In They Killed Blockbuster, now the entire film industry. In The Guardian, no need to send it back. Netflix posts its final DVDs to customers. DVDs are going to make a comeback. Wait a the out. The the way the long play album has, man. They're going to want the artwork. They're going to want the the liner notes, all that shit. Laser discs. All right. Yeah. In, right. <laughs> yeah. In and her corpse is still class passing legislation. Democratic <laughs> Senator Diane Feinstein of California, an advocate for liberal priorities, dies at age ninety. Yeah, I didn't see it coming. At all. It's very shocking. Um, you know, Diane Feinstein did a lot of good things. She was on the side, in my opinion, of course, this the side of of good and the right kind of progressive because she also worked to find common ground and like not be an asshole extremist um zealot. Um, I do think she should have retired several years ago. Um, because by the end it wasn't Diane Feinstein that was showing up or not showing up to work. It was the Crypt Keeper. And finally, in the shotgun, in the Chinese, understand exactly how stupid Americans are. Fake belly buttons sold as a quick fix for women who want legs to look longer. I can't even, excuse me, is that what, fake belly button? Oh, like you put it higher up? <laughs> I <laughs> and it's and they're and they're making shitloads of money on these fucking fake belly buttons. It's a so big, wait. it's I mean, it's serious. What is it, you buy money. like high waisted jeans and then a, put on a midriff top and then stick the belly button in the middle of your sternum, and it's like, ooh, look at how long her legs are. Apparently so. But why does her butt look seven inches below her? What? Okay, I gotta. I'll have to Google that image search that because that's like <laughs> what. Quote of the week to ponder as you consider life most pressing sources. Pulling it from a Hunter Thompson book. Of course you are. Actually, technically two. Actually, appropriate, very appropriate for this episode. So it it is. Um, I would pull a DFW quote, but there'd be four footnotes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this is it's it's in Hell's Angels, like toward the back of the book, as part of a chapter, and it is the epigraph in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And in the movie Fear and Loathing, it opens up with with this quote from Doctor Samuel Johnson: "He who makes a beast of himself 
gets rid of the pain of being a man. This is not good advice, first of all. Let's just let's establish that right away. Especially when you consider that Thompson put it at the front of Fear and Love in Las Vegas, which is just a book of horrible human behavior throughout yep. the entire thing. Like our heroes yep. are fucking the worst kinds of villains. Yeah. Maybe not the worst kinds of them, but they're, but they're just they're very the children. Villains. They're fucking children is what they are. And then it gets really dark and unfunny and like, oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're just, your responsibility is no longer cute and funny. You're, you're like malevolent children. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was always kind of a, an, an honest truth of, yeah, you go out and you tie one on because like I've had a long week. I've had this and I've had that. My kids, my, my wife, I have this. Ah. And the beast is going to exist. And you got to let them feed a little bit, but you can't let them off the leash. So as I'm thinking about this quote, which I do love and agree with, what ends up happening is you make yourself a beast to avoid the pain of being a man. You often end up creating more pain for that man when you wake up in the morning. When Bruce Banner comes to, who did I hurt? What did I destroy? When Dr. Jekyll returns from Hyde, who did I hurt? What did I destroy? So. And I would, I would to, to take that one, one step further, I would argue, or not argue, I just, I, what it makes me think of is, uh, Beasts, the thing that separates a beast from a man is that a beast has no empathy. A beast has no uh, morality. A beast, a, a, literally an animal, which is a beast, you know, because it, it's easy to associate the word beast with like a bear or a fucking, you know, like something big, a gorilla. But, you know, honestly, a fucking groundhog is a beast as well. I mean, by the definition of the word. And it's an animal. And animals don't give a... F it's just live for that moment. It's eat. You know, anybody it's that's ever brain. seen a dog it's it's eat its yeah. own shit, it's, that, that's a yeah. beast, eating its own <laughs> shit. It's eat. It's fuck. It's, you know, I mean, it's just survive. That's all a beast does is survive. Mm -hmm. And a man... Um, does more than that. And I would say, you know, the, the word is man, but a human is either cursed or blessed with the consciousness to be able to see how his or her actions affect their trajectory, affect the trajectory of others. And that's hard. That's the pain. The pain of man is not that it's just hard to be human. The pain of man is that we are aware of others. We are aware of our actions affecting others. We're aware of others' actions affecting us. That's the pain of being a man. So yeah, going into that selfish beast mode of, I don't give a fuck about anything or anybody, give me mine, absolutely avoids uh, the, the, either the blessing or the curse of being a human. Yeah. I like that. I think that's a good quote. Mm -hmm. There are six things you should do this week. My first thing this week, it's a watch. I'm late to the game. Um, so be it. Um, it is um, the movie version of my favorite book, The Da Vinci Code uh, by Dan Brown. <laughs> starring Tom Cruise um, and Tom Sizemore as Tom Hanks. Great film. Uh, no. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, no, I'm totally kidding, guys. <laughs> Uh, my first thing is it is a watch. It's the bear on Hulu. So good. So fucking good. It is. It is so good. It is so funny. It is hard. It is heavy. It's the closest thing to it off loop is... theater I've ever seen on TV. It's so fucking yeah. good. Um, I've watched both seasons twice. Yeah. We're watching the second season right now. And it's yeah. Um, uh, uh. Yeah, it's I good. agree. Very my good. first thing, my first thing is a read. It's in Time Magazine. The man who thinks he can live forever. Mm -hmm. I just want to quote 
I just want to quote some from the article. Brian Johnson is working on what he calls the most significant revolution in the history of Homo sapiens. Johnson, 46, is a centimillionaire tech entrepreneur who has spent most of the last three years in pursuit of a singular goal don't die. During that time, he spent more than $4 million developing a life extension system called Blueprint, in which he outsources every decision involving his body to a team of doctors who use data to develop a strict health regimen to reduce what Johnson calls his biological age. This system includes downing 111 pills every day, wearing a baseball cap that shoots red light into his scalp, collecting his own stool samples, and sleeping with a tiny jetpack attached to his penis to monitor his nighttime erections. Johnson thinks any act what? that accelerates aging, like eating a cookie or getting a less than eight hours sleep, as an act of violence. This is, this is like Howard Hughes level insanity. You got to read this article. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, what is my next thing? Uh, my next thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a little. That one. That 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 is like. What the <laughs> fuck did you just read? Yeah, yeah. It is and worth just, to read. It I freaked just got me out. My, my new issue of Time. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah. It freaked me out. Uh, my next thing is like, a read. It's, it's in the Atlantic. It's from August 19, 2023. Uh, revealed. Those authors whose pirated books are powering generative AI. Uh, Stephen King, Zadie Smith, and Michael Pollan are among thousands of writers whose copyrighted books are being used to train large language models. So, like, yeah, here's a book computer. Insert it, learn how to write like Stephen King, learn how to write like Zadie Smith. So we don't need them anymore. You that is a hundred percent assholes. Yeah, it's, well, and no, I don't and think it's legal, assholes. Legal cases against. I don't think it, the thing is the thing is we're fighting against the. It's it, it basically everybody that's bitching about AI taking over their jobs. You're just you're fucking seamstresses when they introduce the goddamn sewing machine, and you're gonna yeah. lose. It's just the way it's gonna happen. My second thing is also a read. It's in businessinsider.com. Oh, exciting! It is. It's not just you. LinkedIn has gotten really weird <laughs> and it is, and, it, and I've noticed it because it's really the last vestige of social media that I've kept just because, you know, you can find a job that way. And it, and if you, if you've ever really spent any time on LinkedIn, it's, it's just the most performative bunch of bullshit of yeah. look at my job. I'm getting a job. I have a job. I'm celebrating an anniversary of a job, 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 job. Here's how to sell shit. Here's how to advertise shit. Look at all my SEO techniques. Fuck off. <laughs> but what's starting to happen is now people are starting to share on LinkedIn, which is a job site. They're personal shit. They're personal shit. So it's it's worth a read because it's sort of like, yeah, you cannot give human beings, uh, you know, a, a, a bulletin board for anything, for anything yeah. that it doesn't turn into a whiny bunch of bitching about how hard your life is. Just what I'm saying. I say this as a recovering gonzo journalist. And I recognize the irony of it. Not everything has to be personal and political, but everything is personal and political. Every fucking thing. The music you listen to, what you did this weekend, how you found out what sex your kid was going to be, all this shit. Ah, uh, fuck off. Just. Fuck off. To that end, my third thing this week is to read the book, The Things They Carried. A book that is personal and political. And my <laughs> third thing, and my third thing is, it's funny, is for you. This isn't a challenge for anybody else. This is just for you, David. Don't make me read it. Read fucking infinite jest get through the whole fucking book put yourself to my marathon this is my marathon and you must do it because i'm telling you if you can read the whole thing and actually not have a bug up your ass about it and just relax into it at the end of it you are so rewarded 
I have. I I will do try it. again. Quit, I'm telling quit you, saying you're gonna try. Just do it. No, no, it's not look, that fucking hard. I tried book. reading it. I tried reading it once on my own. Couldn't get through it. Katie and I were gonna do a little book club where we read it together. Bought a second copy, so we we couldn't do it. I tried listening to the audiobook while I was working out, running. Couldn't do it. I will try again. I want. I dude. It's just not, telling you, first it's of not all, for lack of trying. This is, not, is not Barzoons from Dawn to Decadence. This is not a three thousand page book. This is this is just a lot of dense ideas, a lot of thick prose, and just at the end of it, if you can get to the end of it and appreciate kind of where he's come from, you you, you walk away going, "Wow, I I know something different about myself in the world." But that's that's my third thing is read Infinite Jest. Anybody else out there that's not read it? Fucking pull the stick out of your ass and read the single most brilliant piece of fiction ever written. I do want to say, um, like for the things they carried, whether you're interested in the Vietnam War or not, yeah, it's really good. A book. Writer, I want to know yeah. how to write or not. It doesn't matter. It is a yeah. book of love and emotion and friendship and brotherhood yeah. and and it's trials. also a really good book to read at this time in our history because it was written yeah. at a time very similar. Well, it was, I mean, it was published in 1990, but it was written about a time of yeah, 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 yeah. The, the time that was very similar to what we're doing, that um, historical overload, as as Douglas Copeland defined it. And that's the show. You, look at that. We did an entire episode about literature. About fucking literature. That's crazy how we could do that. Well, it's one out of seven years. So, yeah. uh, you know, we got to we got to pat ourselves a little bit on the back on that one. Take the wins when you get them. Next That's week, right. we'll be back to talk about TikTok and tits. cooking and tits. Yeah. Yeah. And dick yeah. weight. Dick weight. You can listen to the Literate Ape cast on literateape.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you go to get that delicious podcast experience. If you enjoy the dulcet sounds of two white guys babbling about whatever comes into their stunted brains, leave us a review anywhere that, you know, reviews are left. And share it with someone whom which you have a dubious relationship. For information about Literate Ape, Go to literateape.com, of course, and check out the rest of our podcasts and our years of scribbling. Music on the Apecast is courtesy of Mike Vinopal and Local Motive. You can find them all over Chicago and online at locomotiveband.com. Yeah,